So I like to think of the Dharma as heart training uh, and a meditation as an aspect of that. For instance, uh, we can look at a mango, we can see its color, we can feel its texture, but to actually uh, get the, the benefit from the fruit, we have to taste it. And it's in that tasting that we come to know the, what fruit did I just say? The mango? Yeah, it's in our tasting that we actually come to know uh, mango. Uh, or to differentiate two orange, two orange pieces of fruit, or to different, you know, it's it is in the actual imbibing of it, and so dharma must be embodied, and meditation must be uh, imbibed. It must become our nutriment for us to really get the benefit from it, and for that to be um, uh, made manifest in our ordinary conduct of life, in the way we live and move and have our being. I want you to really see how we should not despise small beginnings and how we should not look upon ourselves as uh, minuscule or, or unimportant. And I'm speaking uh, as a way of understanding oneself and knowing oneself and considering the preciousness of your human life, that what you bring into the world has an importance and it has a significance and if we could could only understand that there's so much good that we could individually and collectively do uh in the world instead of being overcome by the vicissitudes of life and thinking that um situations in the world are so big uh that they're insurmountable because they're not most of the conditions that we're finding so difficult are conditions that were created by man, and if man can create them, then man can come up with a solution to fix them or turn them around. But it ha but it it has its root in understanding our own uh, brightness and having uh, the uh, determination to uh, uh, to feed that and allow it to grow until our inner brightness actually shines beyond beyond ourselves and for most of us that that takes really coming to know ourselves ourselves before we're all covered up with our perceptions and and before we're all tamped down by our experiences the the self that is unsullied and that is unmuddied the the true our our, our true nature and the buddha said we all possess the bright, awakened nature is just obscured by our false perceptions of what is. And so this whole practice is about breaking down uh, those uh, false perceptions. This whole practice is about conditioning ourselves to walk in uh, the highest uh, aspects of our humanity. This whole practice is about developing an inner steadiness that allows us to remain constant in the face of, of um, uh, situations in the outer world that, that appear to be indomitable. This, uh, this kind of practice allows us to be there for others as they go through these same things. And, and it's something that has to be known by heart. Uh, you can't read it in a book and say, I've got it. You can't like just mentally agree to it and say, I understand what it is. That's, that's akin to looking at the mango 
and having absolutely no idea of its of its essence because we have not yet tasted it. And so I wanted to talk for a few minutes, really, a few minutes this morning. I know you all think I talk a long time, but I'm working on cutting that down. A few minutes this morning about um, this infusion of, like, the right idea, we could say the, the Dharma, along with the heart training of meta, meditation. And so the Buddha talks about um, looking at ourselves as this aggregate or this heap of something that projects a personal identity. So when we say not self, we, we actually mean, and he says that, that the I or the self is not worthy to be considered me. What he means is that we, uh, there is, if we shift our focus from identifying so much with our individualism, we will develop a, a unified mind that can kind of know. You know how a fish, a, a school of fish move? And I don't know who's, who's leading that. I don't know if it's the head fish up in the front or whatever, but they like, they like, they just move like this. Almost like, um, I mean, they move in tandem with one another, just as if they were one, were one unit. And, and I, I like watching it because it helps me to understand what the capacity is to do something, how we can enter into a certain flow. But to do that, it takes dropping this, um, constant, um, focus on the self. And so that's what he talks about when he talks about not worthy to be considered I, you know. And he talks about this heap of things, form, feeling, perception, consciousness, and mind objects. And when these come together in combination, there arises an identification that says I, me, as opposed to you and mine as opposed to yours, and us as opposed to them. And the more we are entrenched in this, the more uh, disharmony, disassociation arises in the world. And so undergoing this training, although it's designed to bring a unification of mind, and I mean, you know, if, if the Dharma was not going to have any effect and benefit in the world in this life, then what, what's the point? I mean, really, what is the point? You know, so yes, it has some far-reaching uh, consequences, the mastery of it, you know, that's not just connected with me and mine, not just connected with with uh, this life, but it does include benefits here and now. And so uh, he says, so if you look at the five aggregates, you have form, that's body, you have feeling, but you can have bodily feelings, like I can feel this, and you can also have mental feelings based on perception, consciousness, and thoughts. So you see, most of it is on the mental side, and it, and you have the body and the mentality, and when it's unified, it's 
at the heart. And that, or the word we use, heart, not this one that's pumping and beating, but the, the central point, the point that brings it all together and makes it of some use or some benefit. So I'd like for us to start thinking in terms of the heart as opposed to the mind. Partly because we have an intellectual bent in this country, you know, and because we, you know, assent to something, then we think we uh, actually know it, whether we have actually experienced it or not. And so the Buddha uh, presses in on direct experience, a direct kind of, of knowing. And he says that when his compassion arose for worldlings, that's what he, he calls us, those for people in the world, because we did not know what suffering actually was. For instance, good things or things that bring us success, the mind constantly thinks about it. Also, the bad things or our failures, the mind constantly thinks about those things. And we think about it not because we uh, chose to think about it, but without even uh, an unawareness being there that they are a proliferation or intrusion of thoughts that we have no control of. So when something negative is arising and we don't really want to think that way or uh, and, and, and have resultant actions based on the ways that we think, and yet we do. What I don't want to do, I do. I can be saying something right now, and I know I should be shutting my mouth. I should not be saying that, or I should not be thinking that. I know that this is going to cause me some problems, and I'm going to regret what I'm saying, and yet cannot stop myself. And we all have these. We already know doing this, this is going to hurt. <laughs> and we do it anyway. Because there is some kind of, of, of misguided, morose uh, gr uh, gratification we feel in the moment as if saying this is going to vindicate our side or give us a one-upmanship to the other. Or, uh, I mean, we can't even figure out why we do things that we know we shouldn't do or that is not fruitful or beneficial, you know, and while we're in that very act of doing them, we can have this realization and have no control to pull ourselves back and not say it. So that means that we actually feel that we will get some benefit and some pleasure from that dastardly deed, even though the other part of us knows we absolutely will not and will regret it, and we're actually regretting it while we're continuing to speak. And he said that is suffering. He said it's suffering for oneself and causes suffering for others and suffering for self and others. <clears throat> and then these constant thoughts about the things that we like or the successes that we've had or the failures that we've encountered or the people that don't like us um, set up a basis for likes and dislikes. And that, you know, without 
without the mind running rampant and focusing on things that it likes and focusing on things that it doesn't like, it w- there would not be a basis for likes and dislikes. He said, duh. Okay, so we have this basis for likes and dislikes that is rooted in the mind's habitual tendency to conceptualize based on perceptions, how things look right now, how they sound right now, how they feel right now, how they taste right now, you know, in these ways. And that's why he says that that the sense pleasures or the information, the data we take in through the senses is not reliable. Or that it is faulty because it is based on perceptions of like and dislike that have been formed and have become habitual through the mind's constant going in one direction or the other, running hither, thither. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to find happiness. So if something happened in the past that brought us some happiness, we like to keep reminiscing about that. And the more we reminisce about that, the more we look at our current uh, situation and become more and more uh, dissatisfied with it if it doesn't measure up to that. And by the same token, it can go in another direction. It can go towards the future. And we can not want to deal with what's happening right now in the present because it feels uncomfortable. So our mind uh, goes into this lull about what could be in the future. I'm going to be this or I'm going to have that. And we become impotent to make any concrete changes in the present because we're fantasizing about the future. Or maybe it's too hard to think that the one that I love and want love from, that when he uh, grabs me roughly, I can think next week, though, tomorrow, in the next few minutes, you know, he will shower me with his love, and that'll make, that'll put all of this in place, and I can be, I, uh, I can be okay with, he doesn't really mean it. Meaning is as meaning does. Whether it lines up with what we want things to be, or not. And so we're unable to come to some conclusion about what is happening right here, right now, because we wish something else was happening. And if we don't have it in this moment, we fantasize about it coming in the future. And he said, and this leads us to both disappointment and disillusion. Disillusionment. So if we find ourselves disappointed or disillusioned. We know the reason for this. It is all tied into our indiscriminate thinking. It's all tied into our conceptualizations of what and and, uh, divisions of what we like and what we don't like. And so part of this training is about studying the heart so that the mind can see clearly what is what, and decide a course of action. It might be to do something and and change things. It might be to do nothing 
and accept the situation. It might be, and when I say accept the situation, that means you have determined that uh, this is the best course of action to just be patient and let things take their time and they'll they'll either run east or west. Or you might decide this is as good as it gets and I can be satisfied with that. Don't have to have everything and things don't have to be perfect. I'm grateful for what I do have. And if I were to compare it with anything to have more peace of mind, it would be to compare it with uh, the deficiencies of others rather than what others have that I don't have. Which one gives me a greater sense of peace in the moment? So if I were uh, lamenting over what I don't have or whether I was grateful for what I do have considering others who have a lot less than me, what arouses a certain kind of peace and contentment? He said the foolish man laments what he doesn't have, but the wise man finds solace in the gratitude for what he does have. And so he says, when we start this process, there is a way out of this dullness into awareness. It says, certain things start to happen. We start to notice what our hindrance is. It could be sensual desire. We're wrapped around our likes, the things that we like, and everything else causes us some degree of consternation, unhappiness. It could be around ill will, things that we don't like. It could be around uh, lethargy, that's like feeding on the trash of our likes and dislikes. And when we do this, the mind becomes dull. There's some people, as soon as they sit down in meditation, they immediately start dropping off. And I know that's a mind that is full of likes and dislikes. Because when you start taking the mind to focus on something that's not your like or dislike, it does not know what to do. It, it, it can't hear, it can't see, it can't think, it can't focus. It just drops off. But that's okay. There's restlessness and anxiety. That's a, a mind that is irritated and distracted from the proliferation of thoughts. There, and all of these lead to uncertainty. Uncertainty in the path, uh, thoughts running indiscriminately or, uh, in the mind, uh, going around in a circle in a loop, not making any progress in, in your life, not making, uh, not understanding what we're doing and not even having any kind of firm, uh, goal in mind or direction in mind. Just not being on a path. And he said that these are, uh, these hindrances come, have come about through conditioning. They have come about through, uh, it's a tendency that gets developed over time. So, we understand, that's why we don't have to be so hard on ourselves, 
you know, if I drop off every time I sit and try to focus the mind, okay, I know what that is, sloth and topic. So what I need to work on is not anxiety. What I need to work on is not sensual desire. What I need to work, you know, we need, we each need to know what it is we need to work on within these five things that hinder us that we can break through to clarity or clear awareness. So if one's mind is constantly judging others, you know, and I'm not saying we don't have discrimination. I'm not saying that, that, that there definitely aren't behaviors and modes of thinking and ways of speaking that are good or bad useful or not useful beneficial or not beneficial i'm not i'm not saying that that we should not have any discrimination but that's entirely different from judging because judging has along with it some kind of notion of a just retribution for that no so there's a, a meanness a nastiness that's wrapped up in it it goes beyond a mere observation according to how what i know or how much I know. It it moves in into uh a harmful a harmful space. Um and so we should know which is our greatest hindrance and work on that. He says that if we don't we become people without any inner quality. It's this inner quality. You don't have to uh, be the greatest of anything. Just be the greatest at doing no harm. That's all, that's all we have to reach for is doing no harm. So we should consider before we say a thing or before we do a thing. Is this useful? Is it beneficial? Is now the right time? You know, will it harm myself? Will it harm others? Will it set something in motion that does not proceed from a beautiful mind? If so, he says abandon it. Work at restraining it. But when you know that it is useful and beneficial, then say it. A lot of the times we speak out of our confusion. And we know we can feel, I just don't know what to do about this situation. And I'm like, ah! We know we're speaking out of our confusion. Get unconfused first then. Just hold it for a little while. And when, when you're more settled in heart and mind, then you can sit down and talk about it. But if you notice our tendency is that when the confusion arises, we like just want to get it off of us. If I throw it on to you, so be it. You know, but I just need to get it off of me. You know, it's like a monkey on our back. And that's part of learning to sit with our discomfort. And when we sit with our discomfort, we find that we possess an inner power and quality and ability to deconstruct that part which causes us so much discomfort. We just start to see it for what it is. And sometimes when we see it for what it is, we recognize that we have no part in it. (laughs) There's really not anything 
that we can do about it. And so that's what I mean by acceptance. It doesn't mean like saying this is okay, but it's accepting that this is the situation right now. And once we come to that place of acceptance that, is, that this is happening, this is going down, this is, this is what it is, without the aversion, that's the key, without the aversion, because the aversion is what keeps us off balance. It's uprooting the aversion and being able to sit with it and clearly look, not being intimidated by. There are a lot of things I could be intimidated about. There are a lot of people that I could be uh, intimidated by. But I choose not to be. I choose to just sit with it until whatever fear might be arising passes. Because fear comes and goes. Can't hang out with that buddy. Unreliable. So if I feel fear coming, I'm like, well, that has no part in me. And I just let it be here until it passes. And it might be something where, you know, you have something that you have to deal with. But how will you have the courage and the strength to deal with it? If you're all wrapped up in fear. So I can't act until I move beyond whatever fear may be arising. Or there may be a lack of confidence. I mean, if you have a lack of confidence in your ability to do something, there's no point. Don't even try to do it then. And I'm not talking about pressing through your lack of confidence until you find one. I mean, sitting there with it until you decide I'm confident and then take an action. And when you get in the middle of it and it starts to look like a little iffy, like you bit off more than you can chew, you look and see where you are. And if you're in the middle of the stream and it's too far to swim back, you just have to keep going. Or you can come and, and think you're so far away, but when you look back and see how far you come, you know you can keep going. Or when you can look back and say, I have barely left the shore, you can turn around and go back that way. No harm, no foul. And just say, I'll save that for another day. I'll try again another time. That's just what it is. You don't owe anybody an explanation. You have to just decide and be clear about your decision. You That's when you wrap other people and tie other people up in it, when you're all wishy-washy yourself. But when you know yourself, when you can become steady in your own self, when you can overcome distracting thoughts by having developed the capacity to focus and concentrate, when you know within yourself that a thought that is arising is not beneficial, it's not useful, and will not inure to any good benefit, and you choose to abandon that thought, apply the antidote, just sit and do nothing until it passes, then you are starting to really know your higher nature, your greater self, 
that is inexplicably tied in to the whole universe. And so he says that when we stand in this way, you know, I have to stop writing notes because I, the thoughts come so fast. I write the notes, I can't even read, but I written so it's of no use I have to just get up here and make up something else <laughs> because I can't read the notes that's why you got to get it inside <laughs> because if you just look to find it on the paper or in the book at the time that you need it it cannot rise up in your heart to meet the situation and so that's why we you know move back and forth between uh, hearing and contemplating something uh, that is useful and beneficial and times of sitting to see where we find that or don't find that inside. And at some point in our development we're not fooled. What you see is what you get. Inside, outside, same, same. And then you can walk free, as the Buddha said, like a tusker in the woods. I get this image uh, of a rhinoceros with this big horn, you know, and he's not, he's fearless. He's not afraid of anything. And he just roams free in the woods. This woods could be akin to us being in this conditioned reality, this conditioned world. How will we walk free in the world? Unless we first develop some kind of qualities of being and then live up to those qualities in our actions. Otherwise, the mind thinks one way, but we do another. Otherwise, the mind is so dull that it takes us down paths of great suffering and causing suffering for others. But when we live contented, live peacefully, live uh, in loving kindness, in compassion towards others, rejoicing in the successes of others rather than um, uh, being jealous or envious. When another person's success becomes your success. What kind of mind thinks like that? The mind that thinks like that. How do you make the mind think like that? You turn your mind to such thoughts and lean into them, even when you may not feel like it in the middle, in the in the beginning. When you think uh, someone gets something, and like, I should have got that. I work as hard as they do. Then the mind is not peaceful. But when somebody gets something, and you are happy that they got it, and you start leaning in that way, you start brightening everything around you. And creating the conditions for the similar occurrence 
to arise in your own life because you're planting a certain seed. If you don't like what you see showing up in your life all the time, you got to look and see what kind of seed you're planting. And some things take a long time to to germinate, to take root, to sprout. Some things don't take much time at all. Like like uh, anger is a is a it's a quick thing. You know, it flashes up and it destroys, it burns up everything like that. You can like just say something in a fit of anger, and even though you come back and apologize, and even though that person says, I forget you, they're going to put a little bit of distance in you. Sometimes you can say something, you can never fix it. That's how anger has a, it's a quick seed with a quick retribution. And sometimes you can do something, and just out of your kindness, your quietness, your not pressing people, it looks like it never comes back. To you. It takes longer, perhaps, to produce a seed. But in the meantime, while you're waiting for that to come back, you're sitting in this space of fragrance. You're at peace, you're at ease, and you're thinking, my ship's going to come in one day. And you have the patience and the endurance to wait for it. So you have a pleasant abiding here and now, and you've already set up the conditions for a pleasant abiding in the future. And so he says, with all of your getting, get an understanding and a knowledge of oneself, one's habitual tendencies, one's continual ways of thinking and inclining the mind. And if it's good, cleave to it. If it's not, lean in the other direction. So he says, for instance, if you have a hating mind or hating temperament, you know it because you're always judging or condemning or finding fault with other people. Whether you voice it or don't voice it. Inside, in the mind. Mind's always comparing and criticizing. Then he says, if you have that kind of mind and you recognize it, the minute a critic comes up, find a way to counter that criticism. So he, so if you uh, see something and say, oh, well, I don't know why he did it that way, he could have done such and such, then turn the mind to say, uh, he did the best he could. Well, that could work too. It's easy to say that could also work as to say, why didn't he do it this way? Suppose he's doing something and you know it's not going to work. <laughs> then you still don't have to criticize. You could be thinking, oh, maybe I can help him. Or you could be thinking, oh, he's learning how to do something and he'll find that won't work for him. And let him, let him learn. But you don't have to tear down what he is doing. And in the process, we even broaden our own scope of what is possible, of how things can be done. Okay, so I, I, I identify, I guess you could say, as a Buddhist. Identify, I know you could say, as a Christian. That might be confusing for some people. They just have to get unconfused about that. 
or not, they could like to stay out of it if they want. <laughs> and the important thing is for me not to be confused. You see, because there are many great sages in the world. When he talks about entering in meditation into that place that we move beyond our conceptual thinking, that we come to the absolute stilling of thought, that's like we stop looking and describing the mango and we start tasting the mango. That's a direct experience. And he said, and, and when you are touching that which is sublime, that is which is a high level, that which is peaceful, there are things that start to happen in your body and mind. He said you start moving to these various states of rapture, uh, a kind of joy that is exceedingly pleasant and uplifting. It puts you in a state of mind where you're your most positive and magnanimous self. You feel a sense of enlargement. And however you get into that state, that's what I want you to do. Don't be trying to press into this if over here uh, allows that passage for you. So it could be the the songs of Miller Ripper. It can be the poetry of Baha'u'llah. It could be uh, um, a reflections on the Buddha's teachings. It can be the um, reflecting on the the personality of Jesus. It can be whatever you can find. It can be the poetry of Rumi. It can be whatever uplifts and brings to you these waves of of. So, uh, uh, sublime, high, um, peaceful, loving, expansive, clear kind of mindedness. Use that. And in this place, even though we call ourselves a Buddhist center, Budo means awake. That's what it means. So it's not really a religion. Uh, those of us, uh, the Europeans made it into a religion. They just lived. They didn't call it anything. But we have to name everything and compare it to something. And so we came up with it being like a, a, a Buddhism and, and a Buddhist because that's how we do without segmenting, compartmentalizing minds. But if we, like, remove that notion, we don't have to self-proclaim as anything. Just be something. Be the highest and best that you can be. Be a fountain of love and compassion. Be open to learning and growing. Be a present help in the time of need just for whoever's in front of you. And that might turn out to be a big thing that you do or a little thing. People may know about it or they may never hear about it. But what you will do for yourself is you will self-reveal your own inner brightness. And that, my friends, is the awakening. So I thank you for coming today. I'd like to ask you to, to sit this week. 
Start with just five minutes. And one easy way to sit is to turn our attention to the breath or recite a poem of Rumi or sing a praise and worship song or, you know, uh, whatever lifts you, aspires you to your best. Just do that. And then when we come together, what by whatever means, we have come to the central point in mind and heart. We know each other by the fruit that we bear. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. I want you to know that last uh, on the 23rd of uh, last month, we got our occupancy permit for the house. And we had a retreat. The retreat started on the 25th. So we got the permit on the 20, uh, the occupancy on the 23rd. Now all the way up to this time, for the past year and a half, we've been getting nothing but green slips, right? Green slips mean it's a go. It means that this is good. This is good. Nothing you see on the door, just full of green slips. Or you see yellow slips, which means the part you've completed is a go, finish the rest. And all of a sudden, two weeks before uh, the retreat starts, all we're getting are red slips, red slips, red slips. I'm out of town at a retreat. And, and Jay, I've asked Jay to come in and finish because my schedule is so big to come in and manage for me. So he moves up here for, for uh, two and a half months to finish everything for me. And he calls me and says, Honey Waddy. It just seems like every day the inspector comes and what he approved yesterday, he disapproves today when he comes to look at something else. He said, I don't know what the problem is here. I said, go to the permits and call me when you get there. So Jay goes to the permits and he calls and there's a supervisor and there's our our um, inspector who's assigned here. And I said, uh, okay, someone does not want to let this go forward. I need to talk to that person. They said, oh no, it's not like that, Paniwadi. We just want to make sure everything is right. We just want to protect you and make sure that everything is right and blah, 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 blah. I said, then I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about who does not want this to happen. I want to talk to that person, you know. And uh, and so we had this conversation. Then you know that's all it took was a conversation. Not getting fearful, not getting angry, just being straight up front, there's somebody who doesn't want to let this happen. I need to talk to that person. And the next thing I knew, by the next day when he came out, all those red slips turned to green slips. And we got the permit. Okay, but now we have no electricity. Because Duke can't hook us up to the whatever that booster, that thing is out there, transformer, until... We had the certificate of occupancy signed off on, and it gets there, and then they need two weeks to hook it up. So now I'm calling through because you don't have two weeks, my friend. We have two days. Can you come out tomorrow? They're like, they can't possibly come out tomorrow. It's not not going to happen. They have to have a two-week window. So then I said, Jay, all right, we got to get a, uh, 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 what do you call that, uh, generator. I mean, can you imagine the generator it takes to run 30 30 rooms, it's a lot. It's a big, it was like a trailer. But we found one in South Carolina. We brought it up. 
we were not going to be defeated. We brought that trailer up. They brought the wrong one. So then they come down the night before the retreat. People already arriving. Nobody's slept in this house for 10 years. The, the walls are so cold in and out because there's been no heat on in 10 years, and people are arriving. Okay, so we hook up the generator, and we go out and buy like 30 additional blankets. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's just being with whatever is arising uh, without fear, without anger, without just being with it. And I tell you, if you get this kind of mind, I don't care what your situation is. Well, I don't care what, what your your heartwood issue is. You know, you just get with it and get still with it. You will know the steps to take. And if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, I put them on notice that you might have a cold night. It was going down to 29 that night. And they said, oh, well, what are we going to do? We, I said, I said, with all your years of practice, you can handle one cold night. And and that was it. But everybody was freaking out. Oh, the people going to be upset. Maybe, but they don't have to be. All they have to do is buckle up, button up, put on extra blankets, because we'll have to survive one cold night. And we did. And then the next day, they came in the nighttime, too, and they hooked this thing up for us. You know, so you find favor with people when you can just be still and not all freaked out in fear. Try it, and you'll see a difference in your present moment enjoyment of life, both the good and the not so good. Okay, have a good week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.